You know, it occurs to me that if a person wasn't used to going to church, all this would seem pretty strange, wouldn't it? These seemingly normal people that all get together and sing, and then some guy gets up and does a speech, and they sing some more and we all go home. That's not real normal in our world. I got thinking this week, where, where, where are we even used to hearing speeches anymore? You know, if, if we polled and I said, tell me where you're used to hearing speeches, most of us, I think, would say the same thing. We're used to hearing politicians give speeches and make promises in order to get elected and then not keep the promises. True? That's what we've gotten used to. There are politicians who do, who try very hard, but we've kind of gotten this cynicism about us. We're used to speeches for politicians, and so why do we do sermons? We do sermons for your salvation. We do sermons for your transformation. We do sermons because Jesus loves you so much, He doesn't want you to be the same person tomorrow that you were yesterday. And so today we're going to talk a little bit more about persecution. That's what came up in the text last week. But, but even more than that, Jesus is going to try to help us understand that the world that we live in out there is completely different than the world that He died for us to live in. The world out there is literally at odds, is literally at war with the world and the life that Jesus would have for you. And when I say we preach for salvation and transformation, that's important to understand and to remember because there's a point at which as Christians, we live in that world, but we cannot be consumed by that world. And it is easy to let that happen. And so Jesus is continuing on in John today, and He's helping us understand that there are some things that we can expect to happen out there that really shouldn't surprise us. We heard about some of it last week when Rich talked. And we're going to continue to understand and hear it because Jesus continues. And so if you've got your Bible, 16th chapter of John, first verse, we're just going to go through four. Last week, Jesus talked about persecution. It happens in a lot of different ways. And I'm not talking about you you feeling like, well, someone doesn't appreciate me. The boss doesn't appreciate me. That's technically not persecution. It might feel like it, but I'm sorry. That's not what we're talking about. I remember being a kid, and if you ever played sports, you heard this. Well, the coach just doesn't even doesn't do anything but yell at me. Well, if the coach stops yelling at you, that's when you've got to worry. Well, it doesn't feel good. If I would have known the word persecution, I would have said the coach was persecuting me. That's not what we're talking about. As Christians, persecution is when we're singled out or punished or even murdered just simply for being a Christian. And for 2,000 years in the Christian church, that has happened. Persecution is when we're singled out and treated differently and unfairly. And not like what the rest of the world is treated just simply because we're a believer in Jesus as the Son of God. And it's important to understand that just because someone isn't nice to you, that's not the kind of persecution that we're talking about. You know what? People are mean. We even have our turn. We're not as kind as we could always be. But that's not what we're talking about. Our passage today was written to the very first followers of Jesus 2,000 years ago. And no sooner had Jesus started teaching about God's kingdom than people who were not a part of God's kingdom began to be threatened. 
And why were they threatened? Because it was different. And Jesus was give, is giving a warning in our passage today about what people would encounter, but He was also giving them encouragement. And we need to make sure that we understand the text clearly in that context, that Jesus was speaking to a very specific group of believers 2,000 years ago. But we can also make the move and we can understand that there are some ways that this very much applies in our world today as well. We need to be mindful of that and encouraged. And persecution doesn't feel like an encouraging thing, but here's what I want to tell you. If you've ever been singled out or treated differently or made fun of because you were a Christian, you should be encouraged by that. And you should be encouraged because what that says is that somebody in the world that is ruled by the enemy of God, Satan, the devil, is seeing that you're different. And your difference shines a light on their sinfulness. And Jesus says if we're doing that, we're going to be persecuted. And we should be encouraged about that. Jesus' concern for this group of people just as well as for you and I is in His recognition that to be a follower of His is to choose to make a decision that is different than the people and the world around us. To choose to be a follower of Jesus is to make a decision that is different than what the rest of the world believes and does. Really what it amounts to is what uh, 1 John 2.15 says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father isn't in them. It isn't that we're not supposed to appreciate creation. It's not that we're not supposed to appreciate our life. It isn't that we're not supposed to find joy and happiness in the world. That's not what it says at all. What it says is when you love and you give your heart, when you give your allegiance to the world and the things of the world, you better be careful. Because our hearts can only go one way. So saying it differently, it's we're to be in the world, we're not to be like the world. And the war that's being waged in the battleground is you and I, it's your heart, it's your mind. The battleground is over our souls, over our hearts, over our commitments. See, the devil wants us to be so tied, so connected to, so in love with the things of this world that we choose this life. Money, pleasure, popularity, the the right group of friends, the perfect job, that we choose that stuff over God. And if the enemy can get us to do that, guess what? You're never going to be persecuted. There's no reason to attack you at all. And the reason that there's no reason to attack you is that you have then chosen to become like the world. But if you choose to become a follower of Jesus, it means that you have chosen to be different. Jesus knows that we are constantly confronted with the need to choose. need to choose a job. Maybe it's one that gives you higher pay, or maybe you can choose a job doing something or being somewhere else that can make a much different difference in the kingdom. You can choose to save all the money you earn or to to spend all the money you get on yourselves, or you can choose to be obedient to God, be generous givers and cheerful tithers, and tithing is simply 
giving God the first 10% of everything that we have is a first planned out thought, not giving God the change that's left over as an afterthought. We can choose the pleasures of this world in all of their forms, or they are many. Or we can choose godly obedience and focus on the things that God has for us in this life and the promises that God has for us in the next life. So why does it all matter? It matters because of this. The world can be attractive. Sin looks good. You and I know that. I don't have to lecture you on how attractive the devil can make sin look. But what I will remind you is that the devil cannot make you choose sin. He can entice you to sin. He can entice you to think that the things that are not of God's will look a lot better and a lot more fun than the things that are of God's will, but the enemy cannot get you to choose to sin. He just makes sin attractive. So verse 1, John 16, Jesus says, I said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Falling away from what? Falling away from faith. Falling away from the gathering of believers. Falling away, falling away from what... At our very best moment, we say that we want to be and the person that we want to become. And remember, he was talking about this persecution. He's talking about love and hate. Jesus knows that God and God's love are strong, but our faith can be fickle and fragile. He's talking about falling away from being the kind of Christian that we want to be and instead allowing ourselves to be the kind of person that it's easy to be. And that's the draw of the world, that the life of the world is easy. There's really not a lot of obstacle there. The world will welcome you. Sin will invite you. The world will make ways for you to get involved. The enemy will create a path for you to just go as far into the life of the world and the life of sin as you want to go, and it will be easy until it becomes unbearably hard. Choosing Jesus is a different course. The word Jesus uses here, the fall away word that we translate, is scandalizo. It means scandalized. Read that differently. Jesus said, I I give you this as a warning so that you don't get scandalized. That you don't get offended. That you don't distrust or to cause someone else to stumble or fall to sin. When we understand it that way, it takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? Curious, Jesus would follow his teaching on how the world will surely persecute us and hate us because of him. And he follows it with a warning so that we don't get offended or distrust him or fall away from faith. It seems strange until we find ourselves living in the warning. That scandalizing, that offense. That's an often misunderstood feeling, and Jesus says you've got to be careful of that. So where does it come from? Well, Revelation 12.10 has a warning. It talks about the accuser of the brethren and it's the fate that's going to befall those people who, people who speak out against God's chosen. There's a warning in that because you know it's real easy to fall victim to it. I, uh, you, you know, I, I kind of like to, to pick on Oprah a little bit. And I justify it because Oprah knows better and she teaches something else. And then I, I got a text message last week And I realized that I've got to stop talking about Oprah in a negative way, at least for now. You know what Oprah did? 
Did you hear about the, the scam that was running? That, that people were putting out on social media that if you uh, signed up to this fake account and you gave them your information that 100,000 people were going to get $5,000 or something like that. So Oprah did this like public service announcement and explaining it's not true, don't give them your information, don't do anything. And she's standing in front of a big Christmas tree like we had. And you know what she said at the end? She said, don't give them any information, don't give anybody like that any information. And you know how she ended it? Merry Christmas. Oprah Winfrey said, Merry Christmas. And I realized I've got to stop because it could be misinterpreted as me trying to kick up a scandal and to accuse somebody else. So Oprah's off the hook. See, most often those scandals that happen, and if you've been around the church very often or very long, you know what I'm talking about. They're stirred up against us. They don't come from non-believers. Non-believers want to encourage us into their world. Non-believers want to make their life look better and more interesting. Non-believers who want to lead us into sin make sin look attractive and they make sin easy. Those scandals, they don't come from the non-believers in the world, no. They come from people who know better. They come from people inside the church. If you've been a churchgoer for very long, I want you to think back for a moment at the worst you've ever been hurt, the, the most that someone has ever done that has hurt you on the inside. The odds are real good at someone who called themselves a Christian. And the reason that it hurts so much is because you thought they knew better. You thought they knew what was at stake and you expected more. So much of that scandal comes from inside the church comes from people who know what God's Word says and who claims to be Christian. And the goal is always the same. It's the same goal. It's to discredit another believer in order to draw people away from hearing God's truth being spoken. Their aim is to get people to distrust God's anointed. That's what's happening in Revelation 12.10. And encourage people to fall away just like what Jesus is talking about. And the sad thing is, is it isn't just the person that loses. It's the one who's causing the scandal and saying the junk. And it's the church that loses. Everybody loses. And as Christians, we've got to be aware of staying away of that stuff. Because what it is, it's letting the world crash into God's house. Verse 2 says, They'll put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And the initial disciples, the people Jesus was talking to, they had a what? Kill us moment. But they knew what was happening. Jesus was saying more was going to happen. But they knew. They probably had friends and family members that the Romans or the Jewish church leaders or other people had literally taken their lives for what they believed. And Jesus says there's more of it coming. And when they do that kind of stuff, they're going to think they're actually doing God a favor. Is they the world? Certainly it is sometimes. And we're seeing that in our nation. We're quick to assume that it's a, a Christian-hating culture, single-minded on destroying the Christian church in America, but, but the fact is some of the worst persecution against Christians in this country has and continues to be at the hands of other so-called Christians. See, one of the chief aims of our life as a Christian should be this, to become like Jesus, to become Christ-like in our thinking, in our actions, and in our speaking. One of the things, if you want to know, well, how do I become a Christian? What am I supposed to do? Just try to be like Jesus. 
Don't try to be like me. Don't try to be like the people who stood up here. Don't try to be like someone from our worship team. Because we're trying to do the same thing you are. We're trying to be like Jesus. The chief aim of a Christian is to live a life that our thinking and our speaking and our living is Christ-like. However, to be Christ-like is also to be unlike the world around us that doesn't believe, as well as an awful lot of people who fill the pews of churches in this country. So we quickly assume that to be Christ-like offends only non-believers, and it does. But it doesn't offend them alone. The reality is to be truly Christ-like is to stand in, in direct contradiction to a lot of church people who are there more for the observation, not the transformation. Is your job to point them out and to show them their fault? Nope. Your job is to not to become like them. Your job isn't to go on a hunt and find all the non-Christians in church. Nope. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell you to do that. But I will tell you that it's our job to not become one of them. It is our job to know the difference. What should we be coming to church for? Not observation. We should be coming to church for personal transformation. So I firmly believe this is why the Bible teaching churches like us and like a whole lot of others, churches that encourage people to live what the Bible says, not just to talk about it, not use the Bible as a talking piece or as an excuse, but actually live by it, are becoming more and more ostracized by so many institutional churches and churchgoers who are more concerned about being accepted by the world and popularity than they are about biblical truth and obedience. Why have I picked on Oprah? Because Oprah knows better. Oprah was raised in a Christian church. Oprah knows who God the Father is, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And she has chosen in my understanding and everything I've read about her to talk only about God as it serves her. And I've held her up as an example, and I will stop doing that. Because I don't want to become like the rest of the world. That's why churches like ours are often referred to as cults. Not by the non-believing world, but by the church-going people who have given themselves over to the world. In seven and a half years, I've had that accusation made, and people have said that all over the place. I've heard it. They've said it to me. And in the dozens and dozens and dozens of people who have accused me of being a cult leader and trying to start a cult church, do you know not one of them? has not been a churchgoer. Everyone is plugged in. Everyone would call themselves a Christian. Every one of them has a role in a Christian church and a place in a pew or a seat. Many of them have been leaders. That breaks my heart. Because not just are we trying to question our character and our intent. We go further. And sometimes what happens as Christians is we at least figuratively kill each other by character assassination, don't we? It's simple. It starts with gossip. It starts with a tidbit of truth and a whole lot of story. It starts with maybe something that you can prove and a whole lot that you make up. And if we could snopes them, you know what? They'd all be having the big red false on them. But it's what we do. And if we check our motivations, it's always because of something lacking in us not something wrong with the other person. And way too often in our churches and among other Christians, I see how effectively we have learned 
to assassinate the character of other believers. It needs to stop. It needs to stop here. We can't affect what's happening in other churches, but we can affect who we are and what we're about. I need to stop picking on Oprah. You will never hear from the front of this church a negative word about another church in this community because God is at work in every church in this community. There may be things that you don't like. There may be experiences that you have had that have been not godly, but there are godly people in every church. And we need to be a church that is far more concerned about building bridges than we are continuing to divide and to build walls. Because the world teaches us to divide and to build walls. The gospel teaches us to build bridges. Verse 3, they'll do these things because they've not known the Father nor me. That's a very simple understanding. Why do people do this stuff? Because they don't really know God and they don't have a real relationship with Jesus. Again, not ours to point out. But when we look at it, it helps us with some understanding. You look at America today, you know what? we got bakery owners and military leaders and politicians and folks in all kinds of shops and stores. In every part of society, they're being threatened with their livelihood, their reputation, and their business simply because they stand on the truth of God's world. Why? Because this world doesn't know God and this world does not know God's Son, Jesus, their Savior. When we don't know Jesus as our Savior, we start using misguided phrases and we misinterpret Scripture. And one of the phrases that came from an ex-pastor and has become the marching sound of a movement is the phrase, Love wins as long as you agree with one particular kind of love. I find that interesting because God is love. Jesus told us to love our neighbors. But movements called love wins and things like them are anything but the kind of love that Jesus teaches. It turns out that love wins only when Christians deny our beliefs and side with a different agenda. That's not love. It's the polar opposite of love. It also happens to be the polar opposite of tolerance. But Jesus never once told us to be tolerant. What it is, in fact, is intolerance and a lack of love. There's some people today in America that are so hate-filled and so adamant that they call Christians and names and everything in the book that they can come up with to advance their agenda, despite the fact that they're the most intolerant people of all. That, folks, that's persecution. It's coming in the hands of individuals and organizations and politicians and courts and a government that does not know God. And why do they do these things? It's quite simple. And if you were going to be honest and stop to think about it, when you speak negatively of other people, when you point out the flaws of another Christian, the same holds true for you as what holds true on the national stage. It's because the love of Jesus, the Gospel, shines a light on human sin, all human sin, yours and mine as well. We're not excused from that light shining on our sin. But for a world that doesn't know Jesus and refuse to acknowledge God, for that world the light is too bright. It's more than they can stand against. And so they band together and demand that Christians are either silenced or punished. That's the world we live in and that's the world that Jesus is cautioning us about. 
And just like 2,000 years ago, it isn't likely to get better anytime soon, but we should be encouraged. Because if that persecution is coming your way, it means that you're different than that world. Easy? No. Important to understand? Yes. Verse 4, he goes on and says, But I said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. We shouldn't be surprised when the wheels start falling off of the bus. When persecution begins, there's a reason. When Christians are punished by the law, by the media, by the government, by the courts, God isn't surprised, and you know what? We shouldn't be either. I hear Christians all the time say, It isn't fair. Nope, it isn't. Get over it. What's wrong? Yes, it is. Get over it. We may not be able to change them, but God can change us. We shouldn't be surprised. Why? Because when the world breaks into the church more than the church breaks through to the world, we know why. When the world breaks through to the church, the church is changed. The gospel is reduced. Jesus becomes secondary. And love becomes something completely different. So the real question is, where do you stand on the issue? Do you stand with the world or do you stand with the gospel? Maybe before you walked in this morning, you you never thought once about something that you had said to someone because you knew you had a right to. They'd done you wrong. They'd made a mistake. Whatever it was, maybe you're starting to think that that's not the best that you can do. That's not the best that you can be. Last Sunday, I sat right over here. I got to sit with you out there. First time in this new space I've been able to do that. I listened to the message and I had a great view of most of you. And I thought, why do we come here? Why do we do this? We could be eating a great breakfast somewhere. Your weekend plans could have extended one more day. You could be with friends or family or fishing or who knows what you could be doing. Why do we do that? Why do we come to church? Is it because this one is closer than another one? Why do we go to church at all? Is it because your friends are here? Your neighbors? Your family? Maybe you're checking out this God thing. You're not really sure what you feel about any of it. Maybe since we moved, we're closer to where you live. Maybe since we moved, we're further from where you lived. Or maybe, and I really hope this is true, maybe you come to this church because you know that you'll have help getting prepared to face the world that you walk into every day of the week. Maybe you'll get a different tool set than what your friends give you. Maybe you'll get a different perspective and understanding of what love is than the movies give you. Maybe you come here because you want to be prepared for eternity. Maybe for you this is part of your lifeline. God and His church have become a part of your foundation. But why? What's your reason? These words from Jesus, they they happen only hours before His death. And His disciples are already frightened, but they're getting downright scared. And Jesus wants them to stay on the big picture. Jesus wants them to understand the eternity picture. And He's warning them, don't fall away. Things are going to get tough. It might feel like things are dark and dreary. You might feel like there's no hope. But don't fall away, He says. That's not easy. When people laugh at you, because you've got friends, every single one of you do, and if you don't, you need to get some. 
You've got friends who would laugh at you for going to church. The reason I say if you don't, you should get some, that means there's people that you need to get out there and get to know so that you could invite them to meet Jesus. Am I right? See what I did there? You've got friends that just don't understand this. They make fun of you. So you don't talk about it. Maybe you're trying to figure this out, or maybe you on the inside are passionately committed. But when the world starts pressing in, you get real quiet. And you're realizing your own kind of persecution. And how are you going to stand against it? I read an incredible story about persecution and faith, and it happened in the Boxer Rebellion of 1900. The rebellion in, in China was essentially an effort to get all the foreigners out of China and specifically to kick out every not-native religion, specifically Christianity. And there was a couple of years where things got really ugly, and the insurgents who wanted this to happen were brutal with Christians. And There have been a couple of really good movies made about it. They went into a mission station, these insurgents did, and they blocked all of the gates, all the ways out, and they had all these people that they captured. And this really happened in 1900. They captured all these people, and they they left one gate open. And on the ground of that gate, they put a, a big cross. And they told the people that if you would simply trample the cross, if you would just simply walk across the cross, you can walk out and you're free to go. Persecution. However, if you refuse, there's a firing squad just outside that door. You will get to walk out, and you will immediately die. So they gather up all the people, and they take them to the gate. They show them the way. They understand what's going on, and there's a cross flat on the ground. Seven, all students, scared to death, stomped all over that cross and walked out to freedom. Never bothered again. Out of fear, they fell away. The eighth student was a young girl. She wouldn't do it. She knelt beside the cross in prayer, asking for strength. She got up, moved carefully around that cross, walked out the door, stood before the firing squad on her own accord and was shot to death. Ninety-two students followed her. Ninety-two students did the exact same thing. Why? Because they'd seen a different example. The first seven were the world. All ninety-three could have followed them, but what for that one girl? who had the courage and the faith to stand up to certain death. And 92 other people followed her. Why would, they, why would they do that? Because their faith was real. Because to them, Jesus was very real. They were more concerned about being true to their Savior than about doing the will of the world. See, our world, folks, wants you to trample the cross of Christ. Our world wants you to jump all over it, to pretend it means nothing to you. 
It's why we do all of this. It's why we offer small groups and all the other things that we do around here is so you can be a part of a community of faith, other like-minded people that are trying to make the right choice and make the right decision so we can belong to something that's bigger than ourselves so that we know that we have in no uncertain terms something meaningful not to fall away from. When people say, I can do church all by myself, I don't have to go to church, you know what? They're the first ones to fall away because they have no one to help them stand strong. Why do we do all of this? To strengthen you. We are church so that we can help each other from falling away. We are here to be and to live and to grow as real Christians, as true followers of Jesus. Not ones that just claim the name and claim the promises without ever being transformed by the promise keeper. We want to be Christians who claim the name, who accept the title, who live in obedience because we've been transformed by the promise keeper. Real Christians who are connected to other real Christians in honest and meaningful relationships are going to help each other, going to walk through life together, and we're going to keep ourselves from falling away into the traps of the world. Sometimes it doesn't want to end well in this life. But there's eternity waiting for us because this life isn't all there is. Jesus wants us to be aware, but Jesus doesn't want us to be afraid. The church is God's gift to bring us close to each other and closer to Him. The world will never understand or respect that. That should never cause us to fall away. There will always be a popular crowd. There will always be an angry voice. There will always be threats and noises. And all of them will be there to divide us and to drive us away from each other and from God. But the promises of Jesus, His life, death, and resurrection are what God offers us to keep from falling away from Him and into the world. So what do we do? Where do we go from here? How about this? How about we agree to be a church and Christians whose lives draw people into faith and build bridges into the world, not the kind of people who separate ourselves and divide. Let's be the kind of people who don't point out the sins of each other but rather help to strengthen each other? How about we be the kind of church where even someone who doesn't know what they believe or someone whose life you know about doesn't matter nearly as much as the fact that they want to give Jesus an opportunity to transform them? That's what's rare in the world. That's what's rare in the church. And if you aren't sure what you believe, realize you've got two choices in life. You can choose to love this world and the things in it, or you can choose to love God, who is the creator of this world, and Jesus, His only Son, who is the redeemer of this world that we have polluted. It is your choice. Choose wisely. And we're here to help. So where do we go from here? What can you do? You can commit to keep your feet in the fire of this church that is the Holy Spirit at work among us. But that's a decision, and it takes effort. It's not always easy to get up and come to church on Sunday morning. There's a million other things you can do. And one Sunday there's a, a good reason not to come to church, but then that makes the next Sunday not to come to church that much easier. And before you know it, you've fallen away from what you want to do. You can commit to keep your feet in the fire. You can commit to your life to living in obedience to God's will. Not what you want, but what God wants for you. And you can agree to be a kingdom bridge builder because... The unbelieving world is doing plenty to divide us. 
We don't need to help. We don't need to be the ones that cause division between Christians. The world does a good job of that. Finally, you very simply invest yourself in God's Word and in prayer. So I'm trying to think of what's an example for our life, and this isn't a perfect one, but here's what I've got for you. Consider yourself a ship. You can travel anywhere you want to in the world. It's all there. You can go where you want. But when you think about it, when a ship comes home, when a ship ship needs to weather a storm, it drops anchor. And it gets a foothold. The world is a storm. Do you have an anchor? What is it? And does that anchor actually keep you at home in the storm or does that anchor send you out into parts unknown? God's Word, God wants to be the anchor in the storm that is the world. God wants to be the anchor against the storms of your life. And when we understand that, that is the beginning of allowing Jesus to transform us. And that's the thing the world just doesn't understand. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Jesus and what it is that He taught to us. God, thank You that You love us so much that You allow us to sin. You love us so much that You allow us to choose our own path, our own way, our own will. And every single time, that separates us from You. But God, You also love us so much that You sent us Jesus that our sin doesn't need to keep us separated from You. Because of Jesus, our sins can be forgiven and we can be brought back to You. Thank You, God, that who we were yesterday isn't nearly as important to You as who we allow You to create us to be tomorrow. Let us be Christians who see the good in others and who share the good news of Jesus with them. Help us to be a church that welcomes people And rather than judging them, that we as a church work to preach the good news of the gospel so that people might be transformed by him. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Um, So where do you go from here? What do you do different? You know what? It's as simple as this. The first thing you've got to do if, if you want to live differently is you have to believe and to know and to trust that Jesus loves you, even you. Right the way you are, Jesus loves you. Right now, at this moment, Jesus loves you. And then the next thing you do, you simply start to make different choices. And our choices aren't just bad decisions or mistakes, they're sin. And when we understand that, that love that Jesus has for us becomes even more incredible. And then you realize when you start to ask forgiveness and to change from that life of sin, Jesus died and paid the price so that your sins could actually be forgiven and you become a new person. And it begins with simply believing that Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Thanks for coming. Have a great week. Good to see you all this morning. Oh, Patsy, you have something. Can you borrow a microphone, Kirsten? (laughs) Do it up, girl. This is Patsy Fenske, and she and Dallas and some other folks are a part of our prayer ministry. And I'm guessing that Patsy got some kind of a word at some point this morning, and she wants all of us to hear it. Am I right? You're correct. The downside of this is I'm not sure where it's found in the scriptures, but I know it's scripture. And it just came to me as you were preaching. 
and I'll just read to you what I wrote down. It says, when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Yeah, that is in the Bible. You are correct. Patsy, I don't know where either. (laughs) Thank you all. Have a great week. Thanks for coming. i got one more song for you.